Well, I want to welcome everyone in our church family today, wherever you're at, wherever you're watching at, joining us from, listening at. It's good to be together with God's people, isn't it? So good. I love worshiping with God's people and celebrating all the good things that God has done for us. As we wrap up today, our last week of the Let's Talk About It series. I hope you've enjoyed it. I hope it's been helpful for you. I'm excited. And uh, I'm excited to talk with you more today. Hopefully I make it through the whole sermon because I've been struggling with my voice lately because of being sick and stuff. So pray for me and I'll do my best. I want to just start out today by answering a few more of the questions that were texted in uh, over the last few weeks. And we'll start out with an, an interesting one. The first question is this. What is the most challenging biblical topic to preach on and why? Good question. Um, it's not the things that you probably think it is. It's actually, I would say it's probably Christmas. Because <laughs> it comes every year, but the story hasn't changed for 2,000 years. So it's hard just to keep myself interested, you know? Like, <laughs> But I don't get nervous when you get nervous. I like preaching when you get nervous, because that tells me I'm talking about something that needs to be talked about. <laughs> Here's a question from last week. If jealousy is a sin, how can God be a jealous God? I read a verse from, talking about the first commandment. God said, I'm a jealous God, have no idols before me. You need to understand that there is a righteous type of jealousy and a sinful type of jealousy. Envy is when you want something that someone else has. So if you lust after your neighbor's wife and you say, I want his wife, I'm going to try to go get her for myself. That would be envy, jealousy. You can be jealous in a sinful way, but you can also be jealous in a righteous way. To be jealous is to long for something that is yours. Like, so I can be jealous for my wife's affection. I don't want her to love someone else. I want her to love only me. And that's the way that God is jealous for us. Next question. What is one thing I can say to my Mormon family members to help them see the truth? I talked last week about other religions and the differences in what people believe. And here's what I would say to this. Every Mormon I know who has walked away from Mormonism to follow Jesus as the Bible depicts him, it started not because of a debate, not because of a gotcha, but because at some point they decided to read the Bible for themselves. And they started to recognize that what I've been taught does not line up with what the Bible actually says. And the Holy Spirit uses the word of God to open their eyes. So I would encourage them, besides just sharing your own testimony of how God has impacted your life, encourage them to read the Bible for themselves. Here's an interesting question. Catholics believe that communion is transformed into actual flesh and blood when blessed by priests. True or false? Uh, False. <laughs> you know, pretty kind of casually and practically speaking, you could just take the elements to a lab and test them. Do they still look like bread and wine or grape juice, if you're, depending on what kind of church you're in? Or has it been transformed into human flesh? It hasn't been transformed into human flesh. Not to mention that, like, in the Old Testament, it clearly says that consuming blood or cannibalism is a sin. So Jesus wouldn't have violated that law by allowing communion to be turned into his actual flesh and blood, but rather, metaphorically speaking, that's what happens. And that's just an example of how people can mix in traditions and man-made teachings that don't actually come clearly from the scriptures, and that can cause confusion and bad practices. Here's another question. How can God be love, yet send four billion people to a place all because they don't believe? No one talks about it. 
That's what I'm going to talk about today. If you're taking notes today, the title of this sermon is, What the Hell? And I hope that this message is educational, but also motivational. Actually, Jesus does talk about it more than anyone else in the Bible, and he talks about hell even more than he talks about heaven. So we have more details about hell in Scripture than heaven. And contrary to what that quote implies, actually a lot more than 4 billion people are going to hell. Sociologists and historians estimate that maybe around 100 billion people have lived on Earth throughout history, and people's best guesses are that maybe optimistically somewhere between 10 to 14 percent of those people have been Christians. So it makes sense what we read in Matthew chapter 7, verse 13 through 14. The highway to hell is broad, and its gate is wide for the many who choose that way. But the gateway to life is very narrow, and the road is difficult, and only a few ever find it. Now, about 40% of Americans surveyed said they don't believe in hell. They don't believe in a literal hell. And only about 1% of people surveyed said they think they might possibly go there. A lot of people say, I like Jesus, but I don't like all that hell stuff. But I need you to understand this. To deny hell is to deny Christ. Because if hell is not real, then Jesus is a liar, and heaven isn't real either. Besides, if you don't accept the realities of hell, you will not appreciate the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The worst part about hell is being separated from God. Because God is the source of all that is good. And in this life, even if you're not a Christian, even if you're not following God, you can still enjoy some of the good things that come from God. It's called God's common grace to all people. His followers enjoy his special grace, which saves, but all people enjoy God's common grace. So even the worst sinner can look at a beautiful scene and enjoy the beauty of nature. Even someone who's far from God can enjoy good food or community or rest. But in hell, when we are completely separated from God, we're also completely separated from God's goodness, and therefore there is nothing good about hell. Hell is the absence of God, and therefore the absence of all that is good. So you got to ask this question. Why did God create hell? How would he even think to do that? Like, was he just having a really bad day? And what happened? So you got to understand, Matthew 25, verse 41 tells us that hell, the eternal fire, was prepared for the devil and his angels. God originally created hell for Satan and one-third of the angels that chose to follow him. Now we call them demons. And because Satan chose to rebel against God, even though he had been in the very presence of God, That led to God saying, this is the worst form of punishment. You deserve it. It's for you and all who choose to follow you. And now that mankind who has been given free will, many of whom choose to follow Satan and evil, hell has been enlarged, the Bible says, to make room for people who choose to follow him. It says in Isaiah chapter 5, therefore Sheol, it's another word for hell, has enlarged its appetite and opened its mouth beyond measure. So hell was not originally created for people, but for Satan and demons. But, man, people chose to follow him, and hell has been enlarged to make room for those people. 
So here's a question that everyone wants to know about. What is hell like? What is hell like? It's worse than we can describe. But Luke 16 shows us where Jesus told a story that gives us some insight into hell. And we don't draw all of our doctrine from hell just from this one story, but from this story combined with all the other scriptures that talk about it. Here's what it says in Luke 16, verse 19. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus. And so this is how we know it's not a parable like Jesus' other parables, because no other parable actually mentions a specific name of a person. Lazarus was covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died, and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried in Hades, where he was in torment. He looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. Pause real quick. The reason that Jesus chose these characters to tell us about is because in this day, people believed that anyone who was wealthy was obviously blessed by God, and anyone who was poor was obviously cursed by God. And Jesus was showing us that's not necessarily true, and it has nothing to do with where eternity is going to take place for you. Also, we see that they died, and they were both immediately in heaven or in hell. They didn't go into a long sleep. They didn't go into unconsciousness. They weren't waiting. They were immediately there. So he called to him. The rich man called out to Father Abraham in paradise, have pity on me, and send Lazarus to dip the finger of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. That's how much agony he was in. Just a drop of water seemed like relief. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. So once a person is in heaven or in hell, it's final. He answered, then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family who still lives, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. In other words, they have the Old Testament scriptures. Let them listen to the word of God. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. And he said to him, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. And isn't that true? Because Jesus, the one who spoke these words, would rise from the dead. And he warned us about heaven and hell, about sin and salvation. And still, the majority of people choose not to believe in him. What we learn is that hell is eternal. That's the first thing. Hell is eternal. It was made for eternal beings. You have an eternal soul. Uh, Satan, the angels, they were all created with eternal as eternal beings. So hell is a place that is eternal. It says in Matthew 25, verse 41, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. The same Greek word is used there to describe punishment and life, eternal. If hell isn't eternal, then life isn't eternal either. There's no purgatory. There's no, you did your time, and now you're done. 
People have asked, you know, another question that came in is, you know, is there any chance that God's mercy could reach hell? There is no indication whatsoever in Scripture that anyone in hell will get a second chance. You have your whole lifetime to choose who you're going to follow. Revelation 14, 11 says, The smoke of their torment will rise forever and ever, and they will have no relief day or night. I could read dozens and dozens of other passages that support the same thing. So choose wisely. Hell is on fire. That's the next thing. Have you ever burnt your hand? Have you ever, I mean, it's terrible, isn't it? I burnt the tip of my finger a couple months ago, like just the smallest, like smaller than the head of a pencil eraser. And I was, was like a giant baby for the next half a day. Like I was like icing it. And like, I, it was like so small. I'm like, oh, it hurts. Like I can't imagine the terror of hell. We see that the rich man, he was in flames. He was in agony. And that's why Mark 9, 43 says, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better to enter eternal life with only one hand than go into the unquenchable fires of hell with two hands. It's terrible. That passage goes on to say that hell is a place where the maggots never die and the fire never goes out. A forest fire, a house fire, eventually will go out because it will consume all the fuel or it will be put out. But hell is a place of fire and that fire is never extinguished. We know that after judgment, when judgment comes, all the dead are going to receive their physical bodies back before they're judged at the great white throne judgment. So if they receive physical bodies, it makes sense that hell is also containing physical fire. Jesus was really good at metaphors and really good at similes. He used them all the time. He said the kingdom of God is like this. But he never said that hell has anything like fire. He just talked about actual fire. Next, hell is a place of conscious agony. Luke 16, 24, remember the rich man said, I'm in agony in this fire. He was thinking about his family, wasn't unconscious. Hell is restless, that's the next thing, hell is restless. Sleep is a way that we maintain our sanity, isn't it? You start missing sleep for a couple days, you become a crazy person. All the new moms will sell you, that's true, right? But hell is a place where there is no rest. Revelation 14, 11 says, and they have no rest day or night. Hell is dark. Darkness is scary, isn't it? It's really scary. You start hearing things, you're like, what is that? Even in your own home, it's dark and you start getting nervous. It says in Jude chapter 1, verse 13 about false teachers, for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. Hell's dark. Jesus is the light of the world. But hell is the absence of God and the absence of all that is good. It is a place of darkness. Hell is worse for some people than for others. God does not judge everyone the same. The Bible implies that the more truth you are exposed to in this life, the worse hell will be. Matthew eleven twenty three, 23, Jesus says, And you, Capernaum, you will be brought down to Hades, but I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Capernaum was a place where Jesus preached, and people rejected him. They didn't receive him. And he's saying, here I am, the Messiah. I am preaching the good news to you directly, and you're not receiving this. It's going to be worse for you on Judgment Day than the land of Sodom and Gomorrah, where the Bible talks about in Old Testament times, God destroyed with fire and brimstone from heaven because it was so wicked. Jesus tells another parable about servants and the servants who disobeyed their master, who knew clearly what the master had said, were the ones who were punished the worst. 
So I can't imagine what it would be like to hear a message like this, to sit in church your whole life and then still reject God. That would be terrible. Hell is hopeless. In this life, no matter what, there's always hope, isn't there? There's always hope, no matter how bad your situation is, there's hope that it can get better. Even if you're sick, even if you're in pain, you even have the hope at least of death, that death will end your pain. But in hell, there's no hope. Abraham told the rich man, you can't come here, I can't come there. No one's coming to save you. The only hope in hell is people hoping that no one else they know will come to that place. Hell is full of regret. Hell is gonna be full of regret. People saying, why didn't I listen? Why didn't I seek out the truth? Why didn't I go to church when I was invited? Why did I stop going when I left my parents' house? Why did I turn my back on God? Why did I take it for granted? I thought I had more time to make up my mind. Regret. All the people who mocked God and his son will call themselves a fool and regret every opportunity they missed. If they could talk to us, they would say, do whatever it takes to avoid this place. But what about... This. What about that, Pastor Ryan? I get lots of text messages. A lot of the text messages that came in, a lot of questions that came in are about different people and different situations. What about these people? What about this? I'm going to answer some of those questions here. What about people who never heard? What about people who never heard? Have you ever been pulled over for speeding? I have. (laughs) Someone said last night. That's why you came to church today, right? It's interesting. If you get pulled over for speeding... Imagine just trying to tell that officer, but I didn't know the speed limit. Has that ever got anyone out of a speeding ticket? No. What does he say? Ignorance of the law is no excuse for breaking the law. More than that, God says that no one has excuse for not surrendering to him. Here's what he says in Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1 says this. But God shows his anger from heaven against all sinful, wicked people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. They know the truth about God because he has made it obvious to them. Listen, for ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and sky. Through everything God made, they can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature. Watch. So they have no excuse for not knowing God. Just looking at creation, just looking at the ocean, just looking at the mountains, just looking at the stars, in our soul it resonates and we know there has to be a creator, there has to be someone behind this. And so what that leads to is a longing to know your creator. You say, who are you? Reveal yourself to me. And the Bible clearly says, those who seek me will find me when they seek me with their whole hearts. So God can reveal himself. God reveals himself through dreams and visions to people who haven't heard. He reveals himself through nature. The Bible says to be kind to strangers because some of you have entertained angels without even knowing it. I have a theory that it's very possible that angels have showed up to witness to remote peoples and tribes so that no one will have an excuse for not knowing God. No one will be able to stand before God and say, I had no idea. I didn't know. 
People ask this, what about children, infants, or mentally handicapped people? What about them? Would they, would they go to hell? Here's what you need to know. God's grace is perfect. The Bible doesn't say a lot about this, but it says enough for us to have a lot of peace. We read about in 2 Samuel chapter 12, David, his infant child dying. David replied, I fasted and wept while the child was alive, but why should I fast when he is dead? Can I bring him back again? I will go to him one day, but he cannot return to me. Clearly implies this is King David. He made big, big time mistakes. He sinned, but he also repented and he was a man of God because of his faith in God. And he said clearly, I will go to my child. He found comfort knowing that he would be reunited with his child. I also find this passage, Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 39, when God told Moses and the Israelites that they would not enter the promised land because of their rebellion against God and their continuous worship of idols. Here's what he said. You're not going to enter the promised land, but your children who do not yet know good from bad, they will enter the land. So that clearly shows us that God is able to discern, because he's all-knowing, what's going on in people's hearts. And he can see that there are people that they're, they're too young or they're not able to reasonably make a decision for or against God yet. Well, how old is that? You know, Pastor Ryan, you know, I don't know. God knows it's probably different for every single person. But here's what I want to encourage you with. None of us are more merciful than God. You're worried about these groups of people. None of us are more compassionate than God. Anyone here ever sacrificed their only child so that strangers who hate you can be saved? So if you're worried about these groups of people, you can rest assured that God loves them and cares for them even more. So we can trust him. Common question, but what about people who commit suicide? For a while... Uh, the church taught that suicide was the unforgivable sin. Suicide is a sin, regardless of why it happens. But the only unforgivable sin is rejecting Jesus Christ. So the way you die has nothing to do with where you spend eternity, other than your time to make a decision is now over. But when you accept Jesus, you become a beneficiary of the blood of Jesus that was shed for you. When you put your faith in Jesus, his blood is applied to all of your sins, past, present, and future. So a person could accept Jesus, and then, sadly, one of their last acts of life could be to choose to end their life. That would be a sin, but the blood of Jesus covers all of those sins for a follower of Christ. So who goes to hell? You've probably told some people to go there, but... Who goes to hell? Well, Satan goes to hell, the demons, former angels who chose to follow him, and all who reject Jesus as Lord. Revelation 21 verse 8 says, But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. And then Revelation 22:15 says, "And anyone whose name was not found recorded in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire." 
How is your name recorded in the book of life? When you put your trust in Jesus to save you. Now, people ask all the time, a lot of the questions I got were kind of like this, but what about these people? Do these people go to hell? What about this group of people? Do they go to hell? What about people who do this? Do they go to hell? What about people who call themselves that? Do they go to hell? I want to kind of answer that and boil it down to the simplest statement I can make. You don't go to hell for what you do. You don't go to hell for who you are. Your eternal destination is not determined by who you are, but whose you are. Ultimately, when you die, you go home. You either go home to your father, the devil, in hell, or you go home to your father in heaven. Every human on earth is either a child of the devil or a child of God. It's getting real now, isn't it? Here's what Jesus said in John chapter eight. He was talking to people who did not accept him, who hated him. And Jesus told them, if God were your father, you would love me because I have come to you from God. I'm not here on my own, but he sent me. But you can't understand what I'm saying. It's because you can't even hear me. For you are the children of your father, the devil, and you love to do the evil things he does. Default mode, born into this world with a sinful nature, we are all children of the devil. Wow. People like to say, well, you know, Pastor Ryan, we're all God's children. No, we're not. We're not all God's children. Only people who accept Jesus Christ are God's children. John chapter 1, verse 12 says, But to all who believed in him and accepted him, he gave the right to become children of God. It's a privilege extended to those who accept and believe in Jesus Christ as the Son of God and Savior of the world. Once you accept Jesus, you become a child of God. Whose you are has changed. And when whose you are has changed, then who you are also changes When who you are changes, what you do, the Bible shows us, also will change. In John 14, verse 21, this is very important. Jesus said, those who accept my commandments and obey them are the ones who love me. How can you tell a child of God from a child of the devil? Because, man, there are some children of the devil who are really nice and really kind, and they volunteer, and they help people across the street, and they serve in food banks. And then there are some people who I, I, I see they identify as Christian, and they're mean, and they don't. Well, here, Jesus boils it down really simply. It's those who obey my commandments, those who accept what I say. And they're the ones who love me. I, it's pretty obvious. doesn't mean they're perfect. doesn't mean you never mess up. But man, it's the people who accept my commandments. Those are the ones who love me. Here's the beautiful thing. Anyone can accept Jesus Christ exactly as they are. You can accept Jesus exactly as you are. But once you accept him, you can't stay the same. Because he changes you from the inside out. People always want to ask about issues. What about my issues? Can I come to God with my issues? Oh, absolutely. Jesus doesn't really want to deal with your issues. He wants to deal with your heart. When he changes your heart, you won't be able to help it. 
but your issues will change. Things change when you give your life to Jesus. People ask me about this. What about Christians who accept Jesus, but they keep on sinning? Well, you have to ask these questions. Were they really saved in the first place? It's possible that a person just prayed a quick prayer because they wanted to get out of hell free card, and they didn't really mean it. Or did they really surrender their lives to Christ? Did they surrender their lives to Christ or just their Sunday morning? So I have to ask that question. But people want to know, can you accept Christ but then lose your salvation? Can you accept Christ but then lose your salvation? I wouldn't say you can lose it, but I would say you can leave it. The idea that it's impossible for someone to follow Christ and then walk away, really hard to actually read the Bible and come away with that conclusion. I could show you so many scriptures, that's a whole other sermon, but I'll just kind of read from John 15. Jesus says to his followers, if you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. Kind of hard to read that and not ask yourself, if it wasn't possible to fall away, why would Jesus warn us to persevere and remain in him? Why would he show us consequences for not remaining in him? So I, I want to encourage all of us to persevere and remain in Christ. So people ask this question, how can a loving God send people to hell? That's the big question that everyone at some point in their life asks and wrestles with. In one sense, God does send people to hell, the way that a judge sends criminals to jail. If someone committed a crime against your family, hurt your family, people that you loved, you wouldn't sit around wondering, how could a good judge send criminals to jail? Now, that's exactly what you would expect a good judge to do. God is a God of justice. We live in a world today that's not that concerned with justice. You could pretty much do anything and then tweet out an apology and in the next news cycle people just forget all about what you did but God is a God of justice all sin will be punished all sin will be punished either you can be punished for your sin or you can allow your sins punishment to be included in the punishment that Jesus already received on the cross it's up to you everyone who rejects Jesus is ultimately saying no I want to take the punishment for my sin when we die, we will all stand before a mighty, all-powerful, holy God. He's more holy than we can really conceptualize right now. We don't really conceive of how holy he is. That means that he is completely righteous and there is no sin in him. None of us have ever encountered a perfectly holy being like God. Isaiah chapter 6 gives us a little bit of insight into this. He's a prophet, he was a man of God who loved the Lord, and he was taken to see God in some kind of vision or something. And here's what he said, I saw the Lord, he was sitting on a lofty throne and the train of his robe filled the temple. Then I said, it's all over, I am doomed, for I am a sinful man. I have filthy lips and I live among a people with filthy lips, yet I have seen the King, the Lord of heaven's armies. Here's the prophet Isaiah, whole book of the Bible named after him, so he's a pretty godly guy. And when he sees God, 
What's his first thought? Oh, yes, I see God. I love him. It's so good to see you. Come here. Give me, give me some love. No, he's like, I'm dead. <laughs> he fell on his face before God. I'm doomed. I'm dead because I'm a sinful man. My lips are filthy. Out of your mouth comes the abundance of your heart. My lips are filthy because I'm a sinner and I live amongst sinful people. And I know that just being in God's presence means I'm dead. And when we see God face to face, which we all will at some point, we're going to understand how holy he is and how terrible sin is. It's more accurate, though, I would say, to say that people send themselves to hell. Matthew 7, 13, remember it said, the highway to hell is broad and its gate is wide for the many who choose that way. People who spend a lifetime rejecting God. People spend their lives rejecting God and saying, leave me alone. And eventually God says, okay. C.S. Lewis said this, in the end there are only two kinds of people. Those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. If you spend your whole life telling God to leave you alone, eventually he's going to say, all right. People who go to hell, they tell God, leave me alone. I don't want anything to do with you. And God says, your wish is granted. The reason that we struggle with the concept of hell, and we all have struggled with it at some point, is because we overestimate our goodness and underestimate God's greatness. We all think that we're pretty good people on some levels. Remember, only 1% of people think that they might go to hell, according to one survey. Even though the Bible clearly says the highway to hell is broad for the many who choose that way. We don't really have an easy time really grasping this concept that, you know, all sin, any sin, even one sin, would separate us from God eternally and warrant eternal punishment. People say, how can punishment be eternal for crime that was committed one time? You need to realize this principle. The gravity of your crime is determined by the power and authority of the person whom you commit the crime against. Crime committed against God, even though it might have happened in one moment, actually results in eternal punishment. And really, we're not being punished, like I said, for what we do in individual little moments. We're punished for a lifetime of rejecting God. I want you to understand this, and I think that this will give us peace. Nobody in hell, nobody in hell believes they don't deserve to be there. In our prison system, there are people that will tell you, I'm innocent, there's been a mistake. In our justice system, there are even convictions that are overturned, and rightfully so. There have been people falsely convicted of crimes. But point out, let me point out what the rich man in hell, he never said, Father Abraham, there's been a mistake. I'm innocent. I shouldn't be here. I don't deserve to be here. Nobody in hell is thinking that way. They're going to stand before God. They're going to witness an account of all the sins they've committed. They're going to know, I deserve my punishment. Nobody in heaven will be sad about people who are in hell. I want to say that because people ask, how can I enjoy heaven if people I love are in hell? And it makes sense that we wrestle with that question now because there are people that we love and we see the good in them and we enjoy them. 
We care about them. But like I said, we overestimate our goodness and underestimate God's greatness. When you see God, when you get to heaven, you're going to finally really understand for the first time in your existence how good he is and how far he went to save wicked people, how patient he is, how merciful he is and has always been. In heaven, we will never question God's justice. We'll never wander. How could he send good people to hell? Instead, we'll be amazed at how far he went so that bad people could go to heaven. I hear people all the time, like, I don't want to believe in a God that would send people to hell. It's like, what, well, what do you think this is, bro? Who do you think you are, Peter Pan? If you stop believing in Tinkerbell, she's going to fall out of the sky and die. You can believe in God or not believe in him, but it will affect him in no way. However, it will affect you in a great way. In Isaiah 45, verse 12, I want to say this to anyone wrestling with this. And all who were angry with him will come to him and be ashamed. When we encounter God, we're going to know, I should have never questioned his goodness, his love, his mercy, or his greatness. It doesn't really matter if you like it or not. I know we live in a world where it's like, well, I don't really like that. No, I reject that. It, it just doesn't really matter. And you have to understand, Jesus isn't even asking for our vote. He's not a politician trying to win your vote. He is, however, a king trying to save your soul. And you get to choose for him or against him. Hell is absolutely terrible. It's worse than I could ever describe in a thousand sermons, but the solution is really simple, church. Don't go there. Just don't go there. You get to choose. Every single person who lives gets to choose. So the question is not, how can a loving God send people to hell? The question is, why do people reject a loving God? Why? Why would you reject a loving God? Jesus volunteered to die for you. He went to the cross. He took God's wrath upon himself. Jesus went through hell so that you wouldn't have to. It really just comes down to this. Will you accept him as your Lord and Savior? Will you surrender your life to him and let him save you? Will you make him the king of your life? He is a loving God. He's more compassionate than any of us. You say, I don't like hell. Well, neither did God, and that's why he gave us a way out. He said, just accept my son, Jesus, and put your faith in him. It's such an important decision, a decision that we all have to make. I want to show you an illustration today. I think we have time for this. Here's an illustration I thought of that time goes on forever and you are an eternal being with an eternal soul. And there's been a lot of stuff happening in this world before you were born, right? All of history can be summed up like this. God created the heavens and the earth. He set his people free from slavery in Egypt. Jesus came and died for the sins of the world, rose again. The church of Jesus Christ exists. Here we are today, 2019. Here's your life, 2019. Your entire life takes place 
in this section of red tape. You're born, you grow up, you go through puberty, you go to school, maybe you get married, maybe not. You grow, you age, you live, and you die. This is your entire life summarized right here. And we get so focused on the here and now, and people choose to reject Jesus because of things that they don't want to give up in the here and now. Well, I don't really want to accept Jesus and surrender my life to him because I want the pleasure that I want. I don't really want to accept Jesus and surrender my life to him because I want to be the God of my own life and make my own decisions. And what we forget is that the here and now, it's so brief, but then eternity is going to go on forever and ever and ever. And the decisions that we make in our lives here in the here and now, the decisions right here in this little moment are gonna have consequences that go on forever for for 10,000 years and 100,000 years and a million years. And you haven't even met all the people who were Christians in Arizona yet. And then 100 million years. And you're gonna be sitting there thinking, man, while I was living in my lifetime, I wish I would have done more that had eternal consequences for the good. But people who rejected God in this lifetime, and you don't know how long your life is going to be. You could leave this place and die in a car accident this week. I hope not, but it could happen. People die every day. You could choose to reject God today because of something else that you think you want more. But trust me, you're going to be paying for that decision forever. And you'll think, why didn't I listen Why didn't I surrender my life to God when I had the chance? A hundred million years, a billion years, a trillion years, not one less second spent in either heaven or hell. Goes on and on and on. So what choice are you gonna make? I'm gonna ask you to bow your heads right now and close your eyes. And I wanna make sure that nobody leaves this place today without having the opportunity to accept Jesus Christ and say, listen, I don't want to risk it. It's too big of a decision. The consequences are eternal. It's not worth anything else. There's nothing worse losing my soul for eternity. I want eternal life. I want to receive the gift of salvation that was offered me by a God who loves me He wants to forgive my sins. He wants to bless me. He wants to give me good things. It's really our decision to accept that gift or reject him. So if you're here today and you'd say, I'm not a Christian, I'm not talking about going to church. I'm talking about being a Christian and having surrendered your life to Christ. There's a difference between calling yourself a Christian and actually following Jesus Christ. Say, I'm not a Christian. Or maybe like, I don't know if I'm a Christian. If you wanna be sure and know, then I'm gonna invite you to pray this prayer with me right now and say, God, I accept Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. I ask for my sins to be forgiven. I believe that Jesus died on the cross to pay the price for my sin. I believe he rose again so I could have eternal life. I'm gonna trust him to save me from this point forward. Lord, I'm gonna do my best to obey your commandments and follow you wherever you lead me. I know you're not gonna lead me into sin, but you will lead me into righteousness. I'm gonna spend the rest of my days living for you. I'm gonna spend the rest of my days serving you and telling other people about you so that they can be saved as well. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.